0: the honesty between us is so vital and painful and joyful and resolves into ever deeper intimacy that it cannot be denied that there is an aspect of soulmates between the two of us that is platonic and timeless. I'm just a poor wayfaring stranger Hi, everyone. This is Ivy Tara Blair with Ivy Tara Blair Unplugged Quarantine Edition, in which I am doing informal reads of small sections of books that are either uplifting or sympathetic to our experiences in quarantine and in the fears and discouragements and trappedness of being stuck in quarantine worldwide. Today's read is from Let's Take the Long Way Home, A Memoir of Friendship, by Gail Caldwell. Though this book has a bittersweet tragic end, this section that I'm reading is from the opening where these two women accidentally find each other and the establishment of their friendship and the deep love they share. It's really uncommon to find writing of any kind, acknowledgement in our culture of any kind, about deep platonic friendships that last a lifetime, that have true intimacy, that last beyond lovers and family squabbles, that are soulmates, if I may go so far, and yet don't have a romantic or sexual attraction quality to them. I love this book for a lot of reasons, but that is certainly the main one. Because I have been fortunate enough to have such a friendship that has lasted for years. And that, should we take good care of it, I expect to last a lifetime, has lasted through tumult, professional life changes, relationship life changes, pain of every kind, and in which the honesty between us is so vital and painful and joyful and resolves into ever deeper intimacy, that it cannot be denied that there is an aspect of soulmates between the two of us that is platonic and timeless. We are also creative partners. I'm an audiobook narrator. She is a director. She also writes. I read her work. She uses it as part of her editing process. And in the process, she challenges me to go beyond my limits as a creative person. It's really hard to describe our friendship. It's also really tearful. And this book does a really good job of not describing such a friendship per se, but capturing the feeling of such a friendship through the daily activities these two women share in dogdom. (laughs) (laughs) I love my friend deeply and dearly, and I dedicate this reading to her and to all we've shared and to all I anticipate with great joy doing together. Let's Take the Long Way Home, a Memoir of Friendship by Gail Caldwell Everything really started with the dog's. I had met Caroline Knapp briefly in the early 1990s, when she was a columnist for the Boston Phoenix, and I was the book review editor at the Boston Globe. A collection of her columns had just been published, and someone had introduced us at a literary gathering that I was finding insufferable. Caroline has a new book, our hostess said brightly, certain that we each had something to offer the other. After the woman had left us, we had exchanged half-smiles and rolled our eyes. I liked that about Caroline immediately. No self-marketer here. She seemed to wear her reserve like silken armor, the French manicured hand holding a glass of white wine, the shy, resonant voice. We passed a few polite words of mutual regard, then moved apart to make the necessary rounds. When I saw her again, a few years later, standing near the duck pond at Fresh Pond Reservoir in Cambridge, we had both downscaled in appearance. Each of us had young dogs, and a dog trainer we knew had recently mentioned Caroline to me. Do you know Caroline Knapp? Kathy had said. She has a puppy, too. You remind me of each other. You should try to get together. I had mouthed some vague assent, though privately I didn't see the resemblance. The Caroline I remembered had been way too well put together to match my presentation in those days. I had a year-old, sixty-pound Samoyed and was walking around with grass in my hair and freeze-dried liver in my pocket. I spent most of my time reveling in the wild pleasures of dog-raising, not much caring how I looked. But the woman I ran into at the pond that late summer afternoon was a far cry from my memory of Caroline's earlier refinement— She was still shy, to the point of my thinking she didn't remember me. The veil of classy attire had been traded for sneakers and a careless braid. Hovering over Lucille, her shepherd mix, who was the same age as Clementine, she seemed as passionately monothematic about her dog as I was about mine. I also knew, for reasons that were personal as well as public— That the white wine Caroline had been holding that night years before had been her magic scepter and dagger both. Public because Caroline had revealed as much in her memoir, Drinking, a Love Story. This was the summer after the book's publication, and she'd been on enough talk shows and feature pages to be a publisher's dream girl, and she showed well, as they say in the trade. There was the long blonde braid, the beautiful voice, the restraint that suggested wells of darkness behind all that mannered poise. The general assumption is that most writers want nothing more than the kind of success Caroline's book had just enjoyed. I had a different perspective from experience and intuition. If writers possess a common temperament, it's that they tend to be shy egomaniacs. Publicity is the spotlight they suffer for the recognition they crave. The personal empathy came from my comparatively cloistered past. I had stopped drinking 12 years earlier, in 1984. But whereas Caroline had gone mainstream with her addiction, I was old school and deeply private about my own struggles with alcohol. I believed the anonymous part of AA was there as a protective shield, and I had worn it as such for years. We traded a tentative hello at the pond that day while the dogs introduced themselves more boisterously. Caroline, do you remember me? I said. And she smiled and said yes. I said, God, you've been going through it lately. Are you all right? She looked surprised and then relieved. She told me later that she had been walking around that day exhausted, half undone by the exposure she was getting, and that talking to me had been a balm. I was more interested in her dog than her book sales. So was she. We were like new moms in the park, trading vital bits of information about our charges that was enthralling only to us. I mentioned a 2,000-acre wooded reserve north of the city called Middlesex Fells, where I was training my headstrong sled dog to run off lead, and Caroline asked how to get there. Because the route was complicated, I explained it self-consciously. "'afraid she was being polite and I was being long-winded. "'The place was half an hour away, "'tough to find even without traffic, "'and only someone devoted to training as I was "'would ever bother to find it. "'A week later, at the fells, "'I heard someone calling my name across Sheepfold Meadow, "'and I saw Caroline on the edge of the grounds, "'waving and smiling. "'I was surprised and pleased.' She must have actually remembered my Byzantine directions, then followed through. Paying attention, I would come to find out, was one of the things Caroline did. She called me a few days later to propose a walk together. When she couldn't reach me, she called again. An introvert with a Texan's affability, I was well-intentioned but weak on follow-through. Not without reason did an old friend refer to me as the gregarious hermit. I wanted the warmth of spontaneous connection and the freedom to be left alone. Caroline knocked politely on the front door of my inner space, waited, then knocked again. She was persistent. She seemed smart and warm-hearted, and, to my delight, she was writing a book, she told me when we spoke, about people's emotional connections to dogs. She seemed like someone for whom I wouldn't mind breaking my monkish ways. The book became Pack of Two, The Intricate Bond Between People and Dogs, published a couple of years later. Caroline gave me the name of Grace and recast Clementine as an Alaskan Malamute named Oakley. Within weeks after our encounter at Sheepfold Meadow, we were planning outings every few days. The fells became one of our regular destinations. We ran the dogs for hours in those woods outside of town, and in other woods, searching out gorgeous reserves of forests and fields all over eastern Massachusetts. We walked the beaches that autumn and the fire trails in the winter, carrying liver snaps for the dogs and graham crackers for the humans. We walked until all four of us were dumb with fatigue. The dogs would go charging through the switchbacks while Caroline and I walked and talked over time, so much and so deeply that we began referring to our afternoon long treks as analytic walks. Let's take the long way home, she would say when we got into the car. And then we would wend our way through the day traffic of Somerville or Medford, in no hurry to separate. At the end of the drive, with Clementine snoring softly in the back seat, we would sit outside the house of whoever was being dropped off and keep talking. Then we would go inside our respective houses and call each other on the phone. What about the ponds freezing? I said one evening after a walk in early winter, when the dogs were still blasting out into the water, oblivious to anything but their own joy. I'm worried about the ice being thin and the dogs going out to chase birds and falling through. You know, this happens to someone every winter. Some dog runs out onto the ice, and the owner goes after her, and the dog manages to get out, and the human drowns. And you know we would both go after the dogs. Caroline listened to me rant. I came to realize that her listening could be so intent it almost had a sound. And sighed before she answered. "'We're going to have to start walking with a rope and an axe, aren't we?' she said. She always knew how to talk me down from the tree. I suppose every friendship has such indicators, the checks and balances of the relationship that make it stronger or more generous than either of you alone. For both of us, in different ways, the volume of the world had been turned up a notch.' Whether this sensitivity functioned as a failing or an asset, I think we recognized it in each other from the start. Even on that first afternoon we spent together, a four hour walk through late summer woods, I remember being moved by Caroline. It was a different response from simple affection or camaraderie. She was so quiet, so careful, and yet so fully present. And I found it A weightless liberation, to be with someone whose intensity seemed to match and sometimes surpass my own. Her hesitation was what tethered her sincerity. As much as Caroline revealed in her books, she was a deeply private person who moved into relationships with great deliberation. I had known enough writers in my life, including myself, to recognize this trait. What made it to the page was never the whole story but rather the writer's version of the story, a narrative with its creator in full control. I also thought that first day, more than once, that Caroline wished she were someplace else, because she kept checking her watch. She must have looked at it, she believed covertly, a half a dozen times. I would learn to live with this little ritual, which had nothing to do with me. It was a marker for Caroline's anxiety, a way to anchor her place in the world, no matter how open-ended her schedule. But that day I found it unnerving, and I finally asked her if she had to be somewhere. She was mortified, I think, and apologized, and we walked until dusk pushed us out of the woods. Monitoring the increments of time, particularly since she had stopped drinking, was Caroline's stopgap against the freefall of the days. Then one other repeated gesture would touch me that day in a way I couldn't have articulated at the time. Determined to keep up with Clementine, I had become a devoted dog walker. I also had had polio as a child, and so walked with a slight limp and imbalance in the world. However much I compensated by toughing my way through, I was frailer on land than I like to admit. When we went out in late September, the forest floor was covered with newly fallen acorns, and I kept slipping on them and fell more than once. I was used to my lifelong ungainliness and said so, making light of it. What I didn't say was that I was accustomed to awkward responses. When I explained the limp by saying I'd had polio, people tended to be either overly concerned or uncomfortable. Caroline, who never seemed to doubt my capabilities for a moment, was neither. After that first stumble, whenever I slipped, she would put out an arm to brace me. Holding on to her became as natural as reaching for a branch. If I was an ambler by nature and ability, Caroline was a sprinter. She was fast, she was agile, and she was often in a hurry whether she meant to be or not. But once she ascertained my usual gait, she slowed her pace to mine and kept it there. I had just navigated my own crossroads. I was in my early forties, at an age when the view from the hill can be clear and poignant both. The imagined vistas have become realized paths. And I think you may live in the present during those years more than any other time since childhood. I'd spent my thirties in a big city newsroom, where adrenaline and testosterone were as pervasive as deadlines— and I'd recently given up a stint as book review editor to go back to my ordinary job as book critic for the Boston Globe. This transition, as well as the recent shifts in technology, allowed me to work from home and hang around with a dog who quickly learned that reading was my equivalent of chewing on a bone. I had long thought that the gods had handed me work tailor-made for my idiosyncrasies— I was too opinionated to be a straight news reporter, too gadabout to be an academic. I was dreamy, stubborn, and selectively fanatical. My idea of a productive day as both a child and an adult was reading for hours and staring out the window. It was my good fortune that I had found an occupation requiring just those talents. Now, with Clementine, I could spend whole days in near silence reading or writing or speaking in the simpler, harsher vernacular of human-to-dog. The first several months that Caroline and I knew each other come back to me with the scent of winter, the crisp, distinctively East Coast aura of snow and city streets and radiator heat. I gave her fur-lined mittens in November on her birthday— A few weeks later, we both begged off other Thanksgiving plans, then cooked a roast chicken together after a day in the woods with the dogs. The weather got worse and colder, and we adjusted our schedules accordingly. She taught me how to walk across frozen trails and sideways down steep hills, digging my feet into the terrain. I taught her the freestyle in an indoor pool, coaxing her to lay her face in the water to learn to regulate her breathing, while she stood there cursing me and shivering. It seems to me now that Caroline was always cold. After the anorexia of her twenties, she had stayed on the thin side of normal, and she would show up for our walk swaddled in layers of fleece. As often as possible, we headed for the woods or the reservoir, but sometimes in the evening, when the New England sun had disappeared at an early hour. We would sneak into the Harvard Athletic Fields, near where I lived at the time, so that the dogs could have an open space to run. The fields backed onto a public housing project, separated by a high, dilapidated chain-link fence. Getting onto the hallowed grounds was a two-person job. One of us lifted the fence where it had come loose over a ditch, while the other rolled under it with the dogs, then held it up from the other side. Our trespass was illegal as well as rough. It was the kind of thing I had done all the time as a girl in Texas, and I was glad that Caroline was willing. For all of her exploits in the drinking world, she still possessed a good-girl quality that I had never been able to muster. We'd stand there in the frigid dark, the dogs illuminated against the night sky by Clementine's whiteness and the lights from the ball fields. It was like being encased in a cave of quiet and cold and we stayed until we couldn't bear it any longer, telling each other's stories, Caroline in her new Ugg boots shivering and smoking, with me getting an illicit, still pleasant whiff of the smoke. I had quit four years earlier. Sometimes we'd sink onto the ground and lean against the old tattered fence, letting the dogs rummage in our pockets for biscuits before they went tearing out into the dark again. We used to laugh that people with common sense, or without dogs, or some were somewhere in a warm restaurant or traveling or otherwise living the sort of life that all of us think from time to time that we ought to be living, or at least desiring. But there was nowhere else I wanted to be, beyond sitting there on the hard earth under a night sky, watching the dogs and talking. Those fields were also where we had our first misunderstanding, or confrontation, or whatever you call the seemingly trivial empathic failures that serve as a testing ground and gateway for intimacy. By the end of the winter, it was clear that we cared for each other, and the routines we had so quickly established, less acknowledged, was the crucial place we were carving out in each other's lives. For a few days, I had been bearing a bruise in silence that had to do with our regard for each other as writers, something so core to me that it still gives me pause to remember my discomfort. As a reviewer for a big daily newspaper, I was the older and more seasoned writer. Caroline was the young Turk at the alternative paper who'd enjoyed a rush of attention for her memoir. Because we had known of each other for a few years before we'd met— We had relied on that implicit assumption between writers of recognizing the other's achievement. In most relationships, this commonality of purpose would more than suffice. But Caroline had never said anything directly about what I did or what she thought about how well I did it, though she had given me a copy of her memoir and asked repeatedly if I had liked it. Now I see this in a different light. I believe she saw me as the one with more of the power and less of the ego needs or demands. That day in the field, I had no such insight. A long piece I'd written for the Globe had just been published, and I was exhausted. We were walking along, and Caroline had muttered some acknowledgement about how hard I'd been working, though nothing about the essay itself. Finally, I blurted out, I have to ask you something difficult. I need to know what you think about my work. She looked at me aghast. "'Oh, my God,' she said. "'I've turned into my mother. "'I assumed you knew how I felt, but I never told you.'" She rushed to reassure me, and we talked for the rest of the walk about what a swampland this was, the world of envy and rivalry and self-doubt between women and writers and women writers, about insecurity and power differentials. We found out that day fairly quickly how great and complex our fondness was for each other. I also had my first sense of something central about Caroline that would become a pillar of our friendship. When she was confronted with any emotional difficulty, however slight or major, her response was to approach rather than to flee. There she would stay until the matter was resolved and the emotional aftermath was free of any hangover or recrimination. My instincts toward resolution were similar. I knew that silence and distance were far more pernicious than head-on engagement. This compatibility helped ensure that there was no unclaimed baggage between us in the years to come. As relieved as I was that day by the conversation, I was unnerved by my own vulnerability. It was as though Caroline and I had crossed into a territory where everything mattered and that we were in it together. Oh no, I said, half laughing but with tears in my eyes. What is it, she asked, concerned, and I said, I need you. This has been Ivy Tara Blair, reading from Let's Take the Long Way Home, a memoir of friendship by Gail Caldwell. Everyone, stay home. Be safe.